Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host today, Drew McCaffrey, and with me again is our resident Star Wars fan, John. Hi. Yeah, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. And uh, as John's presence indicates, we are back to the X-Wing books by Michael A. Stackpole. Today we're covering book two, Wedge's Gamble. And uh, John, what do you think of Wedge's Gamble? Uh, Wedge's Gamble is a good direct sequel. Um, it's different. Um, like you don't, the, the situations that the characters find themselves in this book are very different than the first one. Uh, there's some more development for people that aren't Corrin. Um, and it it just, there's, there's less of a focus on starfighter combat, um, and more of like the espionage intrigue type stuff uh that i think the the series gets into even further in the next installment yeah definitely so the the first book you know we mentioned was like top gun star wars yes um it it really was just a vehicle for uh action scenes yeah so where where rogue squadron uh is more concerned with just moving us from fight scene to fight scene. This book is much more concerned about story. It's, it's actually developing characters and giving them arcs. Yes. And it's not just an entirely, um, spectacle driven story, which I like more. There is spectacle. Um, especially in the last quarters of the book i i think adult me likes this book better than rogue squadron Mm -hmm. um at the time i i you know when i first read these i thought this one was a bit uh a bit slow and dragged on a bit um and i didn't really appreciate it as much as a kid um but just to kind of give you an, an example of like the overview you know rogue squadron is Space battle after space battle, um, and you get to know your main protagonist. That's pretty much it. This one, the rogues have a very significant, um, very significant, I guess you could call it like a commando mission where they have to go uh, more or less undercover, and through through their mission, they're going to make it possible for the for the new Republic to conquer Coruscant, the galactic capital. Yeah. And I just realized I forgot to read my summary of this book, uh, <laughs> but we'll go for it. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's, we don't need to go through the whole, the whole summary, but, but you're right. Uh, you know, in, in the difference in structure uh, and in content here where we get a couple of, you know, our typical rogue squadron X-wing battle scenes right at the beginning to to move familiar readers right along be like all right this is what i'm used to from the first book and then after about the first maybe 20 25% of the book it it moves into uh, a much more espionage driven uh story as you mentioned where they they infiltrate coruscant each each kind of group of rogues has a, a different mission on Coruscant, you know, 
Some of them are checking out the governmental area. Some of them are infiltrating the underworld. Some of them are scoping out the infrastructure of the city, you know, of Imperial City. And, and then uh, we get into that final act when all of them are brought back together by one long action sequence where they all kind of converge on the same location. And then we have our major battle at the end where the rebellion finally takes Coruscant. Right. Um, that's one of my, that's one of the biggest positives I think of this book is the mission in this book is in terms of the Star Wars universe, it's a big deal. They're not just going after like an Imperial facility or like a small scale thing. They're capturing the galactic capital. And the book goes into a lot of detail about why that's important, why the mm -hmm. Republic is doing this now. Um, you know, there, there's political considerations in the book, um, tactics, logistics. Like, there's a lot of, honestly, good detail in this book for um, any military sci-fi novel, but, you know, definitely something that isn't usually found in Star Wars um, that makes their ultimate victory feel earned and believable. Yeah, and Stackpole does a good job with some of the, you know, the planning sessions and the provisional council meetings that we get to see here of laying out sort of the geopolitical landscape of the galaxy post Endor. And that's why these X-Wing books are a really good intro to uh, the Star Wars expanded universe for a, a new reader. Um, Stackpole makes the, the threshold of knowledge very low for what you need to understand because he's going to give you the information, uh, whether you know, whether or not you read the comics, you know, the Rogue Squadron comics, or whether or not you read Truset Bakura or or whatever, he does a really good job of laying the the pieces on the table and saying, this is the situation. This is where the rebels are after killing the Emperor. This is the state of the Empire. This is what's going on with the warlords. You know, so it's easily digestible and you don't have to stumble your way through labyrinthine politics without background information. Right. The, the dialogue is best in this book when it is talking about those topics. Oh, you mean you don't like the dialogue when uh, Corrin is telling Gavin how to get it on with aliens? We'll get to that. <laughs> We'll get to the interpersonal yeah, uh, dialogue. I yeah, but, have things to say. No, I honestly, <laughs> I think the writing in a lot of ways improves from Rogue Squadron to this book. The, the prose is a little better. The dialogue is less stilted, flows more naturally. There isn't as much, as you know, blah, blah, blah. Like he finds smoother ways to info dump. There is still a little bit of that in in some of the the council sessions. You're know, like where Admiral Akbar gets up before the provisional council and describes what Coruscant is. It's like everybody in that room knows what Coruscant is. Yeah. Um. But but there isn't as much of that as there was in Rogue Squadron, so it 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 doesn't you know make make things stumble as much. Um. But there there are still some things he's he's absolutely using that whole like. Uh, oh, I, I know you're gonna you know in, instead of just saying the name of a character he he goes and he's like 
Rogue Squadron's Corellian Commander. You know. Specifically with reference to Tycho, I definitely Oh yeah. <laughs> picked up on that one. <laughs> the Slender Man from Alderaan, you know. Uh, things like that. Um, I forgot he was slender and Alderanian. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there there were a couple of other things uh, that I noticed um, that bothered me more this time around. Uh, things that just plain didn't make sense. Um, like there's one, one line, like a, a nearly an entire paragraph is spent on... Um, uh, Wedge's kind of internal thoughts when he's meeting Pash Kraken the first time. Right. And Wedge kind of sits back and and thinks to himself, Rogue Squadron's unit roster had a lot of names on it. And save for a Jedi Knight, a couple of pilots assigned to training squadrons, and a few pilots who had left for other pursuits, anyone who wasn't active duty was dead. Well, no shit. That's <laughs> literally all the options. <laughs> Except for all these things that could possibly be, everyone is dead. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's dead, except for those who aren't. That's what that sentence says, you know. I mean, uh, I I know that, excuse me, that um, that bit of dialogue is meant to bring home the fact that the battles in the last book were very taxing on them, and, and their missions are very risky, and, you know, some of your favorite side characters may or may not make it through this. Um, that's actually a good point to bring up um, with the Rogue Squadron books. Something I'm finding is I'm rereading them simply because I just don't remember what happens to everybody. You know, Wedge is safe. You know, Corrin is safe. Um, you know, Tycho is probably safe. But um, some of these little side characters um, are are honestly written well enough to kind of worm their way into your heart and you don't know if they're going to be okay because this series will drop secondary characters like flies and is not afraid to do so yeah because because the series can't kill the main characters exactly um it will kill other people (laughs) yeah uh and then the other thing that i noticed a lot of was character dialogue where they're um, they're not asking questions, excuse me, not asking questions, but he puts a question mark on the end anyway. Like um, there's there's one where they're on Kessel and uh, Iniri Forge's father, you know, uh, asks or doesn't ask, but he, he turns to Wedge and he says, "I guess I have to ask what it is I can do for you, Commander." That's not a question, but there's a question mark at the end of that sentence. Maybe like and he want, does this a lot. Maybe they want the reader just to kind of like read that line with like the inflection of the question. He, he, this is this is a grammar issue. Like that bothers the hell out of me because I, I, I see people do it all the time. Um, uh, there, there's also a scene early on where um, uh, one of the provisional council scenes and the Wookiee counselor grumbles something and Threepio turns to Leia and does the same thing where 3PO has a statement but puts a question a question mark on the end of the statement mm. you know and like so things like that do bug me I'm Ron Burgundy uh, yeah <laughs> um but it's it's a uh, quibble yeah it's a it's a fairly minor thing yeah um 
just got to deal with it pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, even though this book has more depth than the first, it, it is still for fun. It is more, it's still somewhat of a video game tie in novel. That's a good time for the reader and escape. Um, I don't think anyone is turning to this series for edification or for life-changing uh, <laughs> life literary experience. So uh, the fact that the writing is refined a little bit um, and the character development is better, I think, makes it a better book overall. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, you know, you're right. People are not reading this to like as a, a master class in literary fiction. Or- yeah. Uh, you're not reading the X-Wing books in a creative writing workshop in college to learn how to properly craft a story or, or write a sentence. Right. But, but that's not to say that there aren't things in here that you can learn from. You know, of course. Uh, there are some things, depending on what type of story you want to write, that Stackpole does really, really well. Um, he's he's great at writing pop fiction. You know, uh, that sort of easily consumable intended for a, a massive audience um yeah it's he's good at it there's a reason why these books are so um beloved in the star wars community it, it's it's high quality pop fiction i'm not putting it at like you know halo fall of reach levels but it's still upper tier star wars for sure yeah yeah um yeah did, did you have anything else on the uh you know, kind of the writing style of the book? Uh, not so much. Um, I think, well, actually, one, one point. Um, for me, just personal personal observation, when the characters are discussing tactics, when they're in the middle of a battle, uh, when they're discussing kind of like their meat and potatoes, um, Star Wars-y stuff, mm-hmm. the dialogue feels good, it feels natural. Um when the characters are, maybe I'm being unfair, but when the characters are talking about their feelings, uh, which does happen in this book a decent mm-hmm. amount, um, I felt like the dialogue was really not how people talk. Yeah. Um, and not how people talk about or would talk about the things that they're discussing in these scenes. There, There's some stilted like language. Yes. Um, one thing I noticed was even in very casual conversations, characters never use contractions. So they're correct. They're That's awkward a big part of it. points um, where if really, you know, in real life, if two friends were sitting down over a, a mug of ale and, and chatting and one of, one of them, you know, is talking about, this this uh you know hot girl that he's into or whatever and and he's describing her he wouldn't enunciate well she is like this and this and this it, there would be slang there would be contractions there be she's like this yeah you know? uh and so some casual dialogue comes across as really formal because of it and it it doesn't read quite right one scene in particular really jumps out of me as an example of that and that's where um i think it's corin erisi and winter they're they're talking they're basically like 
Um, <laughs> they're they're competing over whose life is worse. Yeah, Corin uh, because his um, his dad was murdered and he had to flee his job and so on and so forth. Or Tycho because um, <laughs> his family got blown up by the Death Star. Um, and they're kind of just doing this like, well, I've suffered more than he has, so I matter more. Like, like yeah, it's I, a very I, I think, weird scene. So the, the situation, honestly, is like not unbelievable. Um, the dialogue makes it hard to swallow. It's yeah. it's the it's the reading equivalent of swallowing something that hasn't been chewed enough it just doesn't (laughs) doesn't really flow right and it's a bit uncomfortable afterwards there's uh the scene that really stood out to me was uh wedge and leia chatting outside the provisional council where the content of what they're talking about is really buddy buddy familiar oh it's so good to see you you know Let's talk about our feelings. I'm yeah. going to gently rib you about being single while I'm going to, you know, poke fun at you for, for not tying the knot with Han. Like, uh, but the actual syntax of their sentences is extremely formal yeah. while they're doing this. And it, it there's this mm, it, it's disconnect. More, yeah, it's more like, um, yeah, Leia as her, you know, whatever political position she is at this point, talking to... You know, Wedge, the Starfighter commander, versus like two people that like actually really know each other and have history with each other. Yeah, like if you go back to the original movies, Leia does have scenes where she is the the statesman, you know, the the senator, right, from Alderaan. Uh, the way she talks with Tarkin or Vader, or when she she talks with some of the Republic leadership or Rebel leadership, yeah. And then there's the way she talks to Han and to Luke, and it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And so in this conversation, it feels like she should be talking to Wedge based on the content, the subject matter. She should be talking to Wedge like she talks to Luke and Han, but. She's actually talking the way she talks to like Tarkin or Mon Mothma, right? You know, yeah. It's funny. I was remembering in New Hope how Carrie Fisher kind of affects that, like you know, Queen's English accent when Mm -hmm. she's talking to Tarkin or Vader. And I mean, it's kind of made fun of now. I think probably in Empire Strikes Back, they told her just stop doing that. But but you know, there's. But it conveys something about the character. Like, it's believable that the character, like, in-universe, you you can kind of retcon this, that... It's a Coruscant accent. Leia is affecting a coruscant accent when she's talking to these Imperial bigwigs um, in her senator role. Yes, exactly. Because she has spent time on Coruscant as a a member of the Imperial Senate. Like, in that she, she could... As people do, you spend a lot of time in a you know a foreign country or a different region where people have a different kind of accent. The more time you spend there, the more you're going to start adapting that accent. I mean, I think about my older brother who was born and raised in New York, moved to Minnesota for college in the 90s, and now he has the thickest Midwestern <laughs> Minnesota accent I've ever heard. You know, uh, and so for Leia, yeah, she she didn't live on Coruscant for 20 years, but she did spend a lot of time on Coruscant as a member of the Imperial Senate. So there could easily be that internal switch that gets flipped where when she's around other dignitaries speaking this way, she could easily move into that manner of speaking. 
but that's not Wedge. Right. That's not that's not how she would talk to Wedge. Yeah. 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 So, um, but now that we've now that we've complained a whole bunch, uh, <laughs> I, I I do want to make it clear. I liked this book. Yes. Much more than Rogue Squadron. Th- this book um, edges into the, I guess, A tier for me. Yeah, I I don't know. I haven't considered like the tiers, you know, doing the like S, A, B, C, D. Right. Um, uh, but I I do have a similar kind of opinion of this where when I first read these books uh, over and over and over again as a kid, I often skipped over Wedge's Gamble because I thought it was kind of boring. There wasn't enough starfighter combat there weren't enough space battles yeah uh and now i go back and i read it i'm like wow this is this is a better book there's there's higher quality character development there's higher quality writing uh there's a more interesting story going on even if you know there isn't another uh you know space battle every five pages (laughs) um so about those action scenes you're right there's like one Starfire battle at the beginning here, and then the kind of set piece one at the end. There, there, there are two well, at the two. beginning. Yeah, there, there's the, the two times they go up against the Vengeance Therefore. Right. Uh, there's Corrin and the two Y-Wings of Champion Squadron at Borlaos, and then there's Rogue Squadron going after Zinj Fair. at Marist. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the Starfighter combat is at bookends for the story. Yeah. Um, what there is a decent amount of is just shootouts in this book. Yeah. Like ground combat. Um, I kind of forgot about that. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about how these um, kind of blaster fights are described in other Star Wars books. And they're usually not good. Like Zahn has a few, not written well. I'll, I'll go ahead and just say that right now. It just, they're not described well. Um, well when I'm thinking of like a shooting, uh, writing a good action scene that involves shooting is hard because shooting is a much less intimate form of violence than like sword fighting or right. lightsabers or, or, you, or even using the force or something like that. It's hard to write a good shooting scene and the vast majority of Star Wars authors don't do a good job. Stackpole does a good job. It's almost up there with like a like a Halo author level of like detail and description with with the firefights. You know, I I hadn't really given it much thought, but uh, but I think I agree. Um, I had a lot of fun with the you know the the firefight at the factory, yeah, and and then uh, you know the like the speeder bike chase and and the firefight at the alien combine trial and and then when they're taken over the construction droid and yeah like they're they're all of these scenes that could be bungled but i enjoyed all of them um yeah so like just kind of as, as an example like a typical star wars shooting scene is like han shot the stormtrooper and the stormtrooper went down <laughs> like like that's pretty much it but with with this book and and this continues um in the x-wing series uh, you get the 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 main characters aren't always landing perfect shots. Uh, the bad guys will land shots on people. They talk about the effect um, that the ammunition or whatever's being fired has on like the surrounding environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when a when a bad guy gets hit, it's not just like he was hit and he he went down. It, like it describes the 
physics of it, like it spun his helmet or he, you know, was wounded and you get good uncovered. sensory details. Yeah. You get things it, like, you know, the stormtroopers armor, like rattling against the Duracrete. Exactly. And, yeah. Like when I was reading these, I felt like in my mind, I was watching like a Rogue One style battle, not yeah. just like going to sleep because usually these kinds of scenes suck in Star Wars. Yeah, books. Point and shoot. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, and even, even in scenes where there isn't, uh, ongoing action stackpole does a good job of grounding you in the setting and giving you an idea of the history of the setting like one of my favorite uh moments in the book is at the very beginning when corin is kind of describing his quarters on borleas you know and in the at this point stereotypical starfighter quarters you know it's like you got a couple of like old ejector seats yeah uh and you, and you have like some spare supply crates that are the tables but there's there's the little um, detail where he traded, he had two couches, and he traded one couch for the ejector seats, and the couch he traded was the one that had blaster burns from when Paige's commandos took the base. Yes. You know, yeah, like, good, good details that, they just, it feels real. It feels like yeah, a real it, place. It really grounds you in the setting, it it makes the world feel lived in rather than just a sterile set piece for the character to move through. Exactly. Um, I think that's all I have to say about style really. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's, let's move into characters then. Um, let's, let's start with Corrin. Yeah. Because where Corrin really didn't have a character arc in, uh, in Rogue Squadron, he does have a character arc here. And, he fails. Exactly. He's um, he's not book one, you know, Gary Sue. Yeah. It's, I mean, I hate to use that term, but that it's kind of how he comes across in the main book is is an infallible uh, protagonist. Yeah, he's he's an idealized self insert character. Um, yeah, it's, or it, not necessarily in the traditional Mary Sue sense of an idealized author self insert, but a a reader self-insert. He's a video game character. Yeah, he's yeah. he's somebody for a a young boy of a certain age to read the book and feel comfortable stepping into his shoes and imagining what if I were that awesome? I'm a badass pilot. Yeah, it's same thing with the Master Chief in Halo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you get a lot of, uh, especially in video games, you get the silent protagonist, but. Obviously, you can't have a silent protagonist in the book, but what we we turn up is like uh, a pretty just close to perfect person, like right. phenomenal pilot, good looking. All the women are after him. He's smart. He's savvy. He's charismatic. Like doesn't make a lot of mistakes. But here, after Rogue Squadron, where that was Corin in Wedge's Gamble. Corn repeatedly makes mistakes in this book. He does. And I like that. It I think I mean Stack Stackpole probably did this on purpose. He was like, okay, I've introduced my my main protagonist and and done the thing and you know, gotten the introduction out of the way. Now now let's give him some nuance and kind of explain more of his background and why he's good at some things and not so great at others. Like it, it he has strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's just 
a, a better story. Like, it's hard to get engaged at, at this point with the, the way I read books now. It's hard to get engaged when I don't feel any tension in the main character's choices. And there wasn't much tension with anything Corrin did in Rogue Squadron. In Wedge's Gamble, it's it's fraught. Yes. Uh, every time he's confronted with a decision, A, the decisions are much less clear, and B, we actually see him choose the wrong thing from time to time, and he has to suffer the consequences. Yep. And that's good storytelling. And I think his... I, I guess the development of his romantic subplot in this book is handled better. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's not like, you know, out, an outstanding, no, it's, uh, you know, love story or anything, but, um, but in this book, he has kind of the unique position where his cover, uh, when they're inserted onto Coruscant is that he is a, um, him and Eresy are, are a couple, basically. Eresy is a, um, a Kuwati, a Kuwati noble woman. Yeah. yeah so, um, Kuwati is interestingly, I don't know if a source book set this up or if it came from this book, um, are a matriarchal, um, aristocratic society in which, um, the women are the big deal and they are served by, um, I think it's called a Telbun. Yeah. Telbun. Um, and I'm sure there's a real world, like historical example of this that I'm not like remembering right now. Um, but a Telbun is basically, um, like a lower born male that is trained kind of geisha style, I guess. Maybe that's a good, good yeah. Parallel. It's, um, they're, they're like genetically bred to like, right. they're, they're bred to have great genetics. Exactly. And then trained they, from a young age to be like completely perfect servants. Yeah. And they're not just like breeding stock. I mean, they are, um, but they also educate the children, yeah. manage household affairs. Um, like they have kind of a concubine type role. Yeah, like they're, they have to be not only like genetically, like physically, uh, um, oh, I just blanked on the word, uh, like imposing, like they, right. they, they want, they want good physical stock, but they need to be intelligent as well yes. so that they can not only help these Kuwati noble women have intelligent children, but also they need to handle the day-to-day and training of the children so yeah. that they're raised to be intelligent people. I, and you know. I, I like the whole Kuwati culture thing. I think it's one of the better ones in Star Wars just because yeah. it's like, okay, the people that make Star Destroyers, you could easily just have them be snooty, corporate, cold, you know. Militaristic. Yeah. Male. But no, they have, it. it's interesting. There's... It's yeah, and I love society. I love the the implications of that. Where, uh, it, at least in the old expanded universe, less so in the in the new expanded universe. I know less um, about the that, but yeah, the empire is very sexist. It is very male oriented, and yet, debatably, the most valuable system in the entire empire is a matriarchal society. Right, like. When, when all these, you know, stuffy old men are buying their Star Destroyers and their <laughs> yeah. battle cruisers and their, and their big, you know, their, their big warships, like, the executives they're dealing with are probably all female. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Like, 
I, I love that uh, that juxtaposition of a of a matriarchal culture on a heavily patriarchal military society. Yeah, like, it's it's great to to be a fly on the wall of some of those conversations. <laughs> you know, when uh, Palpatine sending you know some uh, some vizier to to uh, Kuat to commission the eclipse and. <laughs> and he's yeah. got to deal with like the board of directors a bunch and of noble women, yeah, yeah. nine nine or ten women who and and he he's been ingrained to see women as inferior because he's in the court of the emperor and uh and all these women are just like smacking him around with you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah i think there's there's some good source material there for more stories i kind of wish there were more um, I don't think we really get a good Kawadi character until NJO, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, she, she is the person I'm thinking of in an, in the New Jedi Order series is a great example of of what we're talking about yes. pretty much. Um, I can't think of another Kawadi character. I, I really can't. Um, I can Well, too much of a digression. But, yeah, but anyways, going back to Corrin and Eresi, basically Eresi is this noble woman and Corrin is her loyal sex slave. And that's their cover. Um, and going off of the last book, the dynamic is pretty much um, Eresi is this, um, you know, physically perfect or ideal. Not idealized. quite perfect. Not quite perfect. Fair enough. We'll get there in a bit. We'll get, but. Yeah. <laughs> but an idealized female, very um, very aware of her sexuality. She's she's your stereotype hot chick. And then you have yeah. Mirax, who's more the wholesome girl next door. Who also is very hot. Well, yeah. Corn I mean, <laughs> tells us repeatedly how how hot they both are. But yeah. um, there, there, there's this kind of competition between Mirax and Eresi that's a bit silly. Um, but the way Corin handles it as a character in this book, I, th- I thought was, um, I thought was well-written. Yeah. Uh, better than Rogue Squadron. Much I mean, better I than Rogue like, Squadron. I feel like that's all I've been saying <laughs> yeah. is like, this book is just better than Rogue Squadron. Uh, <laughs> it is. That's not to say Rogue Squadron is bad. No, it's not a bad book, uh, but it is a flawed book. It's a flawed For book. sure. Yeah. Uh, and this is a flawed book as well, but not as flawed. No. Uh, but, but yeah, like in, in Rogue Squadron, Corrin is very much a passive um, kind of observer of this competition. Yeah. Whereas in this book, he takes some agency into his own hands and... Uh, and approaches the different relationships in a healthier way rather than just being like, Nope, not like I'm, I'm just gonna, Nope. Like, yeah. Um, and, and it results in him actually entering into, a what appears to be a healthy relationship with Mirax before, you know, he's right. captured and shipped like, off to Lusankia, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, uh, so yeah, Corn in, in this book, um, you know, Iris, throws, herself at him and and you know tries to get him to uh sleep with her after you know corn is a bit more emotionally vulnerable with her she tries to take advantage of him um and he you know is able to say no um he's able to withdraw from it and it's not because like oh i have this thing for mirax instead like no for my own reasons this feels wrong i don't want to do this um, I, I thought it was the, the dialogue, maybe not necessarily, but the, um, 
Korn's motivations as a character I thought were organic and believable. Yes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like there, there were some elements even in it of like uh, reading it now with a a more informed knowledge base as a as a fairly experienced reader reading across more genres than I did when I read this when I was you know, 11, 12, 13, whatever. Um, there's an awareness with Stackpole in how he writes some of the interactions between Korn and Arisi, uh, specifically on the ship when they're coming into Coruscant and Arisi tries to seduce Korn. Uh, that scene read like something straight out of a romance novel. Mm -hmm. Like that is absolutely a trope of romance books. Yes. Like where the, you know, you, you have your love triangle and, and there's always a scene usually fairly early on, maybe towards the middle of the book where the wrong choice tries to seduce the main character and you get just enough detail to titillate the reader but the main character has to make the right choice, you know. It's like, oh, I can't bang this one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to wait for the one true choice. Well, I can't bang this one, but I'm gonna wait to make that choice un until the authors had time to <laughs> describe the shapely curves beneath the sheer dress, or yes. or to unlace the bodice just far enough, or you know, whatever the why the wrong choice is, is tempting enough. You know, yeah. Yes. So like, it's it's tempting to the main character, and it's giving the romance reader teasing the romance reader right. giving them what they want but stopping short you know because right. that's uh to to really bring it into the writing territory and genre territory romance books are structured and written very strategically and differently from fantasy books or sci-fi books or, or horror books yeah. uh, and and one of those things with um, romance books is the delayed gratification. You cannot let the main character just have sex yeah. until the end of the book. Right. There's... Like, you have to string the reader along. You have to build up that that tension. I mean, to maybe not, not to get too on the nose with the metaphor, but... I mean, th th this isn't a romance novel. That no, it's whatever, not. But whatever he sex has occurs, elements in it. Yeah, uh, like in this particular scene and the way the the love triangle plays out was very reminiscent of the structure of a romance novel. I I get that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, which is funny for a Star Wars military it's, fiction. It's book. funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rom romance novels have their own audience and arguably their own um reason for being yeah this is not that the, the the tease i think here uh has more to do with maybe i'm giving the book too much credit but the tease here has more to do with uh corn's development as a character oh it's certainly doing double duty yeah yeah like yeah. It, it that is a key moment uh one of those points in the book where corn doesn't make a mistake right um because we can't have our main character do nothing but make mistakes <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> we need some victories along the way um you know but but nonetheless even, even when he makes the quote right decisions with arisi he still has to deal with the consequences of some decisions he made to put himself 
in those situations. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we get points where Mirax is giving Corrin a hard time because he saw Corrin kissing Mirax in the, in the Grand Hall, you know? And, and so Corrin has to navigate, like, well, I made, I made this Korn choice kissing, to... Corrin kissing Erisi? Yeah, Erisi. He, yeah. he made the choice to kiss her so that Curtin Lure wouldn't, right. you know, blow his cover. Part of the cover. But he still made that choice, and Mirax saw them kissing, so he has to deal with the fallout of that. Like, I like that there are consequences to actions in this book. Yes. Um, and we're spending a lot of time on Corrin. We wanted to talk about all the other characters that get attention in this well, book. But we haven't gotten to... Well, maybe, One, maybe this is our segue from Corrin to Gavin. Yeah, because so... Because we haven't talked about Corrin's ferret girlfriend. Okay, yeah, we can talk about that. I wanted to talk about Corin and Tycho, but we will get to that when we get to Tycho. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing in this book. This actually comes up twice, uh, with Corin and with Gavin. Yeah. Um, there's this whole idea of inter... Like, it's discussed openly in the book. Interspecies sexual compatibility. Um, and we're not talking with, like human versus human-ish, like, you know, a human yeah, with a chest. No- Noara and Rasadi. Yeah, the human in a twilight, where it's literally a human with, like, brain tails, right? Yeah. Um, no, we're talking about, like, human with a critter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I know we're not the first podcast to bring this up, but here... We have Corin talking about some of his previous uh, romantic entanglements. Um, other characters are egging him on to talk about it because Gavin. I'll, I'll bring up Gavin first, actually. Yeah. So Gavin has an interesting experience wherein um, he he's in a bar. They're undercover, um, you know, doing reconnaissance, and a Bothan female comes up to him and propositions him for a dance, um, and for the. Uh, for the for the un unlearned and Star Wars alien lore out there, a Bothan is a cat weasel dog person. Sorta. Of, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's 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 a furry animal with a snout, but that, you know, walks anthropomorphically. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and in in lore, they're a big deal in the rebellion. Of course, they're mentioned in Return of the Jedi as finding the Death Star plans. Borskphalia in this book, kind of an antagonist political figure. He's he's a both, and so so they're a big deal in the universe. Um, but Gavin is approached by one who wants to dance. He declines <laughs> because they're undercover and they're doing recon. Um, a I actually thought this was a nice touch because I like it when the aliens are actually used properly. Um, in Star Wars books, but a, yeah. a Gotal, which is, I think, originally one of the Cantina yep. aliens. Yeah, yep. it's a goat person. Um, they're able to sense uh, kind of emotions and things like that. Anxiety, Anxiety stress levels. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so a Gotal notices that Gavin is relieved when the Bothan, um, Asir Salar, is, uh, w- when she gives up on Gavin and goes away. He's like, hey, he was relieved when you left. Thus, he is a bigot because he's not interested in <laughs> dancing with you. Um, and that leads into a whole other situation for Gavin, where they want to they want to execute situation. him for being a for being a bigot. I, I'm just gonna 
a quick aside. This is one of my like like maybe my favorite subplot of the whole book. Yeah, it was with the alien combine. But <laughs> yeah. go ahead. Um, so so this is interesting for in universe implications to me. Um, so the way it's kind of written is that if you are not, I guess, romantically or sexually open to other species, that makes you a bigot. Because in the in the book, um, Noara, of course, having a legal background, um, defends Gavin, saying, "Well, like, well, we're we're undercover. There were stormtroopers in the bar. It had nothing to do with." the dynamic between him and a seer. Um, anyways, that the, the whole idea of like humans being sexually active with, um, not humans, uh, is never brought up as a defense. So, so apparently this is like a thing in like the rebellion and in their culture where it's like, if you can't be sexually open with, um, furry critters, then that makes oh, you, I didn't get the impression that that was a thing in within the rebellion. Or within, within universe. I'm I'm not sure if th- this is like an extreme saw, example. Yeah, I saw them as extremists. Okay, for that, sure. and that's fair. They are because they're ready to kill them. They're an extremist group. I yeah. I get that, but uh, um, but like the w- the way I kind of read it, you know, initially was like, well, that that's a Bothan. Of course, he's not sexually interested. In it. It's <laughs> it's a cat, um, and. <laughs> And that's never dealt with again. So Gavin, after escaping that situation, goes on his merry way and talks to Corrin, who, of course, um, is much more sexually experienced, um, and asks Corrin, like, hey, well, he pretty much asks him straight up, like, do you have any interspecies? Yeah, I, I looked up a Bothan picture like, when like, I was reading this book. <laughs> how, how, like, like a cat camel person? Yeah, they're... They're a cool design. I like their design, but like it, like they, it they, is that not, elongated snout. It's not human. It looks with, like an animal. Yeah, it's yeah. very much not. It, it's it's yeah. a it's a horse weasel cat person with yeah. with dog ears. I I don't know. Anyways, yeah. um, <laughs> so so Gavin goes to Cora and he's like, "Hey, do you basically do you have any experience with um, sexual activity between?" Humans and non-humans. Yeah, interspecies. Interspecies relationships. Yeah. And not just relationships, but like sex. It's, mm-hmm. They straight up talk about it. Um, and Corin Corin relates this delightful story. About Churtle Rulu War. Uh, yeah, good job remembering <laughs> the name. Um, so Corin is part of Corsac, going into his background. The Corellian system... The, the Corellian system's great because it's like, what, five or six planets, each with a distinct yeah. species... That, and they all kind of get along, and there's a, there's a lot of great lore in there. But anyways, one of these other Corellian system species are Salonians, and they are ferrets. ferrets. <laughs> yeah, ferrets, otters. It's it it it's a ferret. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, Corn <laughs> talks about how there was a Salonian agent that was on loan to Corsac when he was working there, and of course, Corsac <laughs> had their equivalent of like a policeman's ball, and Corin took this Salonian to the ball and then... Yeah, there was, like, some xenophobia going on yeah. where, like, people were getting made fun of and, like, right. being essentially called, like, ferret lovers and yeah. stuff. And, 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 like, there was a whole pool for, like, who 
who's going to have to take her to the ball. Right. And Corin because he's a a a, a golden golden, golden boy, yeah. yeah, philanthropist. <laughs> um, uh, he like rigs it so that he gets chosen. Right. To take her to the ball. Right. Um, and okay, so so I can understand this. I'm 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 transposing myself oh. into someone that actually like lives in this universe, right? Yeah. Um, I can understand like they're being bigoted towards this poor, you know, ferret agent <laughs> that's that's yeah. on loan to them. Like like that's unfair. Saying like, well, I don't want to associate with with an alien. Like that that is bigoted. So he takes her to the ball and they have a great time. Like that is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, Corn talks about how after the ball they got along so well they decided to get a bit intimate. Um, <laughs> so Corn then tells Gavin about how this uh, this encounter resulted in a uh, a rash for him uh, because of the the Salonians' fur, and it, it's it's kind of it, it's funny like it, it's it's definitely written for comedy. Um, but I'm left with like thinking about the broader implications of this, right? So, a there's my like out of universe question of like what theme is the office uh, officer? Excuse me, the author trying to establish here. Like, is this a commentary on interracial relationships? Because if so, it's extremely problematic. Yeah. Um yeah like there's <laughs> it, it i don't know if this is what he was trying to say but yes if if you're in the real world if you're like well i'm not okay with inter um you know interracial relationships or or coupling like yes obviously that's that's a problem but is the star wars metaphor here we're using relationships with animals it, it's it's mm. very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah <laughs> like like there are certain um certain areas of the stars expanding universe where we get into social issues regarding alien species that are very clearly analogous to race issues yes in real life that's that is touched on in the expanded universe better by some than others. Yeah, like like the you look at just the the very baseline idea of the empire who are uh xenophobic and sexist. And you right. can very easily extrapolate that upon um you know Nazi Germany. Yes. who you know had sexist and racist policies. They're space Nazis. Yeah, they are literally space Nazis. They're they're Grunts are called stormtroopers. Yes. Like, come on. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but there are some points where it, it, it's like the authors got so far into the weeds that they didn't know how to dial it back and ended up writing themselves into corners that, like... It's... I, I just that, wonder... That, that you, you have to consciously stop drawing that parallel or else things get very dangerous well we'll take this to its logical conclusion say in the universe you know i'm a new republic military service member um 
you know, and the New Republic is all rightfully so because it's the antithesis of the Empire. It's all about inclusivity and yeah. cooperation with alien species because they've been enslaved and uh, genocide has been exacted upon them and all these horrible things. And of course, any person with a heart <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know, um, a good moral compass is going to say like, no, that's not okay. I'll fight to defend, you know, these other aliens. But would it come to the point where like, well, do you, do you want to, do you want to have sex with this ferret? <laughs> uh, and, and then if you, <laughs> if you like try to draw it back to the already pre-established real world parallel, then you suddenly get this issue of like, well, is is this like supposed to imply that sex between like a white man and a you know an Eastern Asian well, woman is like <laughs> biochemically incompatible? That's like, definitely the most problematic like, takeaway. You yeah, think. like like there there are real issues. <laughs> there, there's big issues. I just wonder, like in universe, if there's a human who says like. No, I love and respect my, you know, alien neighbors and compatriots, but I do not want to have sex with the animal With person. a literal rodent, yeah. <laughs> right, like, I, I feel like there shouldn't be an issue with that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, it, anyways, this could be the whole podcast. It, it could, like, we, we could have just done an entire other episode on, like, on this sexual concept. politics in, in Is it Star ever, Wars. I, I mean... Maybe well, that'll be next month's Patreon episode. Before we, before we completely move on from this, can you think of another example where this happens in the Expanded Universe? Because this book jumped out at me as a young reader being like, what? <laughs> uh, are there... Like other interspecies, like centered this, interspecies to this extent. I'm not talking like human twilight, human no, 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 yeah, no, like human plus human with slight variation, like human plus animal person. Is there anything else like that in the expanded universe that you can think of? The only thing I can think of is the uh, Ferrarin species. Yeah, the um, they're centaurs. Uh, the crystal star. They're basically centaurs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there's like... And there's two different species of them. Correct. And there is some stuff in the Young Jedi Knight books that has sexual tension between Raynar Thul, a human, and a Ferraran. Oh. So that's... As I, I mean, was, I remember there being some kind of weird stuff with Hethrier yeah, in and the Crystal Star. I there mean, there's is. a lot of weird sex stuff in all the Barbara Hamley books, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's there's, a conversation for another day uh, that we will never have because I am absolutely not reading those we're not books do to those. cover them. This on isn't a Star Wars book podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a book podcast that happens to feature the better Star Wars books. Yeah. Um, all of the Star Wars books. If, if I never read the Barbara Hamley books again, it will be too soon. Don't even own them. Um, I own one of them. I own Children of the Jedi. I'm so sorry. Yeah. When when Luke bangs a computer. Yeah. <laughs> even, and that might even be the worst one. I think Darksaber and Crystal Star are uh, probably better. No, Darksaber was Kevin J. Anderson. You're uh, right. It was yeah, uh, right. Planet of Twilight. That's right. Yeah, with the bugs. Yeah, more weird stuff, but probably still there than <laughs> Children of the Jedi. That book was... I, I I always felt like Crystal Star was the worst one. You think so? Yeah. There's some weird shit in that book. Yeah. With um Waru. 
Yes, and Wario, Hethrier. Wario the... The, like, slimy thing. scale what, force creature. Yeah. Whatever, we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, Gavin, other than, all that other than say, Aesir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gavin... Um, yeah, Gavin is a much better developed character in this book. Um, it's fun to watch him because I know he has continued development mm-hmm. through the next two books. And further on in the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Yes. Yeah, Gavin's actually one of my favorite side characters. So he is, um, you know, farm boy from Tatooine, obviously without Luke's force powers. But he's the naive foil to the more experienced Corrin and everybody else, basically. Mm-hmm. Um so he's got, he's put in this position where he's part of this elite squadron now because he's a good pilot. Um, and here they are doing a an undercover commando mission where he's, you know, he's still a young adult. I think he's like in his late teens at this point in the book. Um, and he's confronted with maintaining his cover, um, having all these cultural experiences. I'm not just talking about the sex thing, but meeting... Yeah. You know, meeting like the alien collective um, and kind of deciding his place in the universe. And it's a pretty good coming of age subplot. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons that I think Wedge's Gamble is a much stronger book than um, Rogue Squadron. It's that there's actually time spent developing side characters. It's it's still not to the level of Rogue Squadron, um, you know, or or Wraith Squadron, rather, uh, where literally every character in, in character squadron development is, is kind of the whole yeah shtick for uh, but but at least it's not all corin and you know and little actual development for corin in the first book like the first book really was just here's a group of characters we're gonna give you a tiny little bit about each of them not even that about some of them because they're gonna die uh and then we're gonna throw them into combat over and over and over again right i mean like we have, uh, what, uh, Peshk and Andurni die in the first book, and we know literally nothing about them. Right. It's like, we, we find out that Andurni comes from Rhodia, so she has a hunter background. That, and, and not even that much about Peshk. Yeah. And so, now we're finally getting to know some of the other characters. Like, we, we knew in the first book, it's like, oh yeah, Arisi is, is the aristocratic hot lady from, from Typhara. Now we know more about Arisi because we got to see her in extended close quarters with Corrin and and uh, interacting in different kinds of situations. Now we know a lot more about Gavin, other than mm-hmm. he's the young hotshot pilot from Tatooine who's uh you know whose cousin died at Yavin. Right. Uh, now we know a lot more about uh, Tycho, other than like oh he's the ex Rogue Squadron guy who who was from Alderaan and went on an undercover mission. Uh, yeah. Like, now, now we know a lot more about Rasadi and and Noara, like other than oh she's from Bespin and he's a Twilight lawyer. Like we we got to learn at least more about them, even if they didn't get full character arcs, they're fleshed out more. And um, we get two new additions: Iniri and Aesir. Well, oh, oh, and uh, and Passion, Passion Errol. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, P- Pash. Pash is a fine character. I don't think he gets a lot of depth in this book. Um, he's just kind of a, you know, competent yeah, he's a good military dude. guy. Um, doesn't have a ton of flavor to him. Um, but then there's Errol, who's a 
Celestin. She's she's what? She's Nine Numb's sister. Sister, right. Yeah. So um yeah, Nine Numb, the the chattering guy in the red jumpsuit from uh Return of the Jedi. From the Millennium Falcon. Uh, yeah, in Return of the Jedi. So um I I like Errol as a character because um sometimes the Star Wars universe feels too small, but it's believable that like Nine Numb, this you know, hero pilot, like that his sister would be um, selected for Rogue Squadron. I think she was like a B-Wing pilot or something. But, but then that she's, sounds right. Celestins just yeah. traditionally are, like, yeah. in Star Wars lore. But anyways, yeah, she's selected for Rogue Squadron. Um, and she definitely has a tragic story going forward. But it's nice that the reader gets to know her a little bit before all that stuff takes place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like she's mentioned in Rogue Squadron where she's supposed to be the XO. Yeah. Um, but but Wedge, you know, uh, maneuvers things around to get her out. And, right. Because he's like, I don't think she'd be a good teacher. And uh, Tycho would be. Like, she's a great pilot, but you know, whatever. Um, uh, I'm looking up her article right now and I, I can't find anything about um her flying she was a freighter pilot oh but i can't find anything about her flying a b-wing but for some reason i when you said b-wing it it rung a bell for me yeah well in any case she's just a pleasant um addition to the team yeah um and it was actually nice early on where uh like Wedge is busy with being the commander of the squadron mm-hmm. and so Errol actually has command of the rogues yeah. and flies as the leader of Rogue Squadron for the mission at Marist. Right. Like that was cool. Um do you want to talk about Tycho and the continuing intrigue of whether he's an inside yeah spy or yeah, that so whole thing. I actually think um, the the running subplot of the Rogue Squadron spy is handled pretty darn well. Uh, I don't think it's telegraphed who it is. There are clues, uh, but there are enough options, uh, enough misdirections. And I'm not going to spoil it right now who, who the spy is. Um, but obviously this is central to Tycho's character arc. Um, it, it worked for me. It, it really did. I, I think Corrin's continuing suspicion of him is, is good. Um, he, he, Corrin is given every reason to think that Tycho is suspicious and is mm-hmm. an Imperial sleeper agent and, and the situations that occur throughout the book give Corrin more ammunition to believe that. And yeah. the reader as well. I mean, the reader is probably going to also think like, well, am I supposed to think he's the inside spy or, or whatever? Um, but I, I do like how in the beginning battles, Tycho saves um, Corrin's life. Right. But that's not enough for Corrin. Yeah, it's... There's... Um there's the added wrinkle with Lusankia where we know that 
previous Lusankia sleeper agents went about their lives normally until they were activated and betrayed everybody. So right. it's like, all it's right, like a it doesn't candidate type thing. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't really mean anything that Tycho saved Corin in you know multiple times in the first book because it's like, well, yeah, he's. We already knew Tycho was a hero of the rebellion before this, so whether he's been to Lusankia or not, he's going to act this way. Right. And then and then it's at the end of this book that we have the, you know, uh the betrayal of Corrin Horn, where somebody gave his codes to the Imperials to, you know, the, the codes to his Z95, and his ship was taken over and he was captured and and now he's off to Lusankia. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I liked the cliffhanger in this book with Corrin being captured and, and of course the New Republic takes Coruscant, but we know there's this virus <sighs> that's starting to infect the alien population. Yep. Um, I, I thought the, I thought the bad guy's plan in this book was actually like pretty good. Yeah. So with the song I sard, she's, she's a tough character. Uh, he is repeatedly set up as this hyper-intelligent, scary political opponent. Right. But there really isn't a whole lot we see her do that justifies it. The Krytos virus is does fall on, on that end of the spectrum where it's like, no, this is a super clever terrifying yeah. master stroke that she has pulled off. She's she's more a villain in the vein of Thrawn than like Palpatine. Yeah. She it's more about guile and trickery than it is about just mustache twirling evil. Yeah. Um and and lore of course is our kind of window into Isard in this book as with the last one. Uh-huh. Um you know, Laura in this book is dealing with Derricote, and they have kind of this rivalry. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Derricote developing the virus and Laura, you know, trying to have this make sense tactically for the Empire. Um, but but I, I, I don't know. Do you think it's a good idea for the Empire in this book, from their perspective, to just abdicate Coruscant? semi-believably and then leave them with this virus-ridden world that's going to you know divide loyalties in in the republic or or do you think the empire should have just straight up um turned coruscant into a fortress and and won in a traditional military way so i i do think it was smart for for a couple of reasons one i mean it's it's touched on a little bit in this book um, but more so in other kind of uh, ancillary documentation, uh, just how fractured the Empire is at this point, how many warlords right. and, yep. you know, how you've got Teradoc and Harsk and Zinj and uh, you got, like... The, Resources are split. Yeah, Maldrude is out there and, like, yeah, there, there are so many different factors complicating the situation for Isard. Uh, and on top of that, if she just fortifies Coruscant, well, the rebellion 
continues whittling her away and won't ever strike at Coruscant because it will be impossible for them to take and she can't hunt down and destroy the rebellion because there are scattered in secret bases exactly. everywhere. So like, like I was thinking, you know, well, I've, in deep lore discussions, I've seen people say like, well, why didn't Icehar just pull all these star destroyers she had to like, you know, make Coruscant some impregnable fortress. And it's like, well, about a quarter of those Star Destroyers belong to Zinj now. Another quarter probably belong to uh, right. Kane and Penastar. Yeah. And like, the, uh, so the Imperials' total strength was, you know, divvied up between all these random dudes. And then maybe she really doesn't have the resources. Because if she peels these other resources away from what the Empire still has, then that's undefended. And warlords will take advantage of that. Exactly. But on top of that, she she makes such a point of saying, this isn't the Empire anymore. Uh, I, m- my goal isn't to preserve the remnants of the Empire. My goal is to destroy the Rebellion. And she can't destroy the Rebellion by turning Coruscant into a fortress world. Exactly. So All she can do is preserve what whatever strength they have yeah, remaining. Yeah. Uh, so like this book, I think is when I start is the smartest. Yes. Uh, and, and I like that. Um, and, and I also think it's when the, the subordinates are, are the smartest. We see Derricote in his element, you know, developing the virus, developing the virus. We see curtain lure being an effect, like an effective middle manager. Yeah. You know, because that's for, for all of his grandiose ambitions. That's what he is. Yeah. You know, he would like to be grand Moff Tarkin. He is not grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah. Like, uh, but, but he is still effective at what he's doing because he's learning. Like that's a, that's a big deal. You know, in a star Wars book is that we have a character arc for a villain. Yeah. This, you know. this is true, yeah. So. It's, yeah, a, a lot of Star Wars books, you know, you, the main villain's plan is dumb <laughs> yeah. or unrealistic. Um, Build this super weapon. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And 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 this book, the series, I guess, um, Isard's, you know, various plans and machinations, um, you know, I think makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you have any other characters you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think that pretty much does it. Okay, cool. Uh, in, in in that case, I think it's a good time for us to move on to three favorite scenes. Sure. Yeah, I've I've definitely got three lined up. What's your third um, favorite? My third favorite um, is just that shootout at the factory or that manufacturing plant um, where. Like I was saying earlier, I pretty much already said why it's one of my favorites, but um, the the ground action, the shooting, the speeder bikes um, is all described very well, very easy to visualize, like 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 a movie, like a more um, like a grittier Star Wars movie, like like Rogue One or something. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a video game. It's it's has very good description. Um, yeah. You know, the physics makes sense. Um, I just thought it was a, a fun, well-written scene that's kind of rare in Star Wars. Yeah, uh, all right. That's, yeah. That is a good one. Uh, so my third favorite scene is uh, 
the the introduction of Zekathine on Kessel. Oh, okay. Good, uh, good. The the character dynamics going on in that scene with Iniri and uh, uh, her parents mm-hmm. present, uh, and then Corin and uh, you know Zeka, kind of their rivalry reconnecting. Um, I just I I liked the conversation. I liked the the sparks that flew. I like what it did for certain characters. Um, like Zekathine is a really powerful um, vehicle for this story. Mm-hmm. He's he's not a particularly compelling character, but he's a great vehicle for forcing the people around him into uncomfortable situations and making them change. Yeah. And, and this scene is, is, uh, of course, the first one of those, and we get to see the the dynamics of Iniri Forge through him, and we get to see you know uh, Corin make a mistake. You know, we we get to see Corin lose his temper and and try to get in like this this sort of like you know snarky battle of words where where Corin really doesn't come out of that looking great. No. You know, and uh, so I, I liked that. I like that a lot. I and we didn't talk about that earlier, but the whole Republic plan to introduce Black, Black Sun, Sun elements into Coruscant yeah. as like a destabilizing factor obviously is going to come back to haunt them. Mm. Um is smacks of desperation. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad plan, but Oh yeah, I mean that's like the first thing Fleury Voru says. Yeah, exactly. he, he's like, so you're desperate and you're going after Coruscant. Exactly, <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I think it makes I think it makes sense, but um yeah, there's a lot of good dynamics that come into play there with like, well now we're allied with criminals and like mm-hmm. are they gonna once we take the planet and we're the government, is this gonna be a problem for us? Yep. Yeah. Uh More yeah, so what's your second? Time. Second is when they go to the Imperial Museum. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Okay. So I I thought this was great. They they go to a museum, you know, an Imperial Center where um, it shows, you know, the history of the galaxy from the Imperial propaganda perspective. So yeah. they're they the rogues are there viewing their own exploits, like the Battle of Endor. Um twisted by imperial propaganda where the emperor invited the rebels to a peace yeah, conference yeah. <laughs> and they they betrayed him by attacking the death star and he did everything he could to, to you know minimize the loss of life and it's just it's it's funny but like you think about of course there's good real world parallels with any totalitarian government where um you know an uncritical citizen of of the planet is going to see this and be like wow yeah the em- the emperor was really a a fantastic benevolent dictator yeah, he was, was wronged by those betrayed those by, evil. by the rebels yeah. and um it, it, it's you know funny hearing the characters thoughts as they see this like what 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 is happening <laughs> um you know and they buy like gifts like a little statue right, of the emperor right. and it's, yeah. it, it's it's funny it's, and the way they they reframe the death star yeah, as like a mining tool a, right a mining yeah. laser and yeah yeah i i thought that was great very very creative nice i like that uh well my second favorite scene's uh a little different um 
I don't normally talk about Michael A. Stackpole as being a particularly funny writer, uh-huh. but he had some excellent use of dramatic irony with Lieutenant Virar Nita. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love, like, just Nita's utter incompetence and delusions yes. aboard the orbital mirror. <laughs> like Very well written. Just, I, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. <laughs> where, where he's... Um, he's like getting them, like grabbing his blaster to, to repel borders. Right. And, and then they just move his mirror and use it to melt half a golden station. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's, it's so funny because you have, you have him talking about like, oh yeah, my cousin was... The Nita who got choked out by Vader and Empire Strikes Back, and I'm going to redeem our our family name by commanding this yeah. this orbital weather mirror. Yeah. Um, I'm redeeming our family name by making the weather a little better a for little some rich better. people on course. Yeah, it's like, and if the leaders of the Empire are comfortable, everything will be okay. Yeah, if they're uncomfortable, everything will fall apart. So I. I'm an essential piece <laughs> yeah, of, of this. I, I loved it. Yeah. The it, excellent, excellent dramatic irony right oh, there. Oh, and all of his uh, subordinates, they're just playing cards. And they're like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> He's over there like, <laughs> you know, with his gun ready to <laughs> fight valiantly. And they're just like, all right, bud. Yeah. <laughs> deal the next hand. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Um, yeah, you're, what's your favorite scene in this Fa- Favorite scene, um, pre- pre-conventional choice, but I just, I, I like the last um, set-piece battle in this book. I think it's one of the better ones in the series. The Z-95s in the it, storm. It's great, yeah. So yeah. you have this storm going on. Um, you know, they, they mess with, like, the water treatment plant, so... There's boiling water vapor, which causes storms. I don't know how like scientifically plausible this is, but whatever. It's it should have gotten Peter on for this episode. Yeah, you've you've got this <laughs> this huge lightning storm going on, like in the setting, um, like Twilight of Coruscant, and and funnily enough, with the prequel, it's way easier to visualize this whole book, mm-hmm. but especially um, especially this battle because like you've. You've seen Coruscant at this time of day. You know what it looks like. With a like. storm going on. With a storm going. You can imagine that. It's it's almost kind of like how it looks in Revenge of the Sith uh-huh. when Anakin's going to, uh, you know, the Chancellor and Mace Windu. It's like that same, I, I envision that. And then this battle, of course, you know, with Stackpole's riding is described very well. And you have this kind of unusual ship, like a Z ninety five, not a common. Yeah, choice. I, I liked that. Like it's familiar it's enough, familiar, like it's different. close enough to an X wing yeah. that it's it's easy to uh, not only easy to explain why the rogue pilots are still really good in them, right. but it's also easy for a reader to kind of tiptoe over the line away from X wing combat. Yeah, and yeah, it's an easy to visualize ship, but like it's. It's known for being good in atmosphere, and it's fighting the ties, which are disadvantaged in atmosphere. Yeah. Um, it's it's like this city battle with the storm in the background. It's just I I thought it was great. Nice, it's, yeah, yeah, very very good balance. I I did think about putting that on my list, uh, but it, it didn't quite make the cut. Um, uh, my favorite scene. I alluded to this earlier. It, it's. Um, Gavin meeting the alien combine okay. and, and then getting dragged along to the trial. Just that, that entire sequence really more, more than just a scene, uh, but the sequence 
Uh, it, it has elements of humor to it. It has great character dynamics. It has great character growth. Uh, and it has a, a really good firefight. Right. So. Yeah, it's. Yeah. kind of got it all. When they. Yeah, he's, he's meeting all these alien extremists that, you know, for. For arguably good reason have been maligned by the Empire. Um, and here he is ready to be sacrificed for their own um political goals and then the the empire comes in and ambushes the meeting yeah. you know ironically saving him it's it's a good sequence definitely yeah okay um well unless you have anything else i think that brings yeah. us to the final draft yeah let's talk about it uh so what are you drinking over there um i have a a beer by loveland aleworks a very local uh, brewery and this is called death wobble it's a it's an imperial coffee porter perfect for all those tie fighters who oh. like have a wing blown off and wobble their way can't, to death can't, <laughs> can't handle can't handle the atmosphere and of course it shows a guy on a bike on the oh can. geez um, that got dark <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah a, a good good tie-in um nice nice uh and and what do you think of the beer uh it's good i like I was saying earlier, I, I had it on tap and mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Um, in the can, it's it's good. It, it's it's fine. Um, it's almost like a, a sad panda light. Yeah, very coffee driven. Yeah, uh, but thinner body. Yeah, um, like a like a light version of like a like a breakfast stout or something. Yeah, but it doesn't have the chocolate going on. It's it's exactly because it, it's a porter. It's just got that the roast malt and roasted coffee. Yeah. Um, blends very nicely without being super heavy. What's the ABV on this? No, oh, it's a seven. I, seven the, point zero. The imperial yeah, that's not bad. is like yeah, it's it's a little imperial. It's not a lot of imperial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the beer I've been I've been drinking here is from Firestone Walker in California. And this is a French oak barrel aged wild ale fermented with black currants. Six point three percent. It is. Uh, I, I like it quite a lot. Sounds like I liked it a little more than John did. A little more. Um, I still liked it. Uh, definitely tannic. Lots of that black currant flavor coming through. Uh, for for any listeners who are familiar with the style, um, you know, like a, a Flemish red ale. Uh, if, if you think of something like a, a Rodenbach Grand Cru mm-hmm. or a, a uh, Duchesse, Duchesse de Bourgogne, yeah, uh, you know, like that. W- one of those that that has like a, a really strong, like red wine, almost vinegar flavor. This beer steps up to that line, but doesn't quite cross over it, and I like that. It's um, more accessible for sure. Yeah, uh, it's just yeah, very fruity. It it is sour without getting really acidic. Mm-hmm. Um, very enjoyable. Yeah, uh, and it is called undercurrents <laughs> which you know that's that's what basically the whole last two-thirds of this book are you know the, the the undercurrents of coruscant and and manipulating the the local population there um but i like this beer even more because while it's called undercurrents it's currents with an a so they're making a pun based on the fruit in the beer <laughs> and uh yeah i love can't, coruscant can't it's go insane. wrong like, come on, Disney, give us more Coruscant. Oh, uh, yeah, it, it still still annoys me that they didn't have anything on Coruscant oh, yeah, in the okay, sequel trilogy. Okay, okay. Come on. Missed opportunity. Well, maybe maybe they'll uh maybe they'll make the Rogue Squadron movie all about the Rogues <laughs> taking Coruscant. 
We'll just we'll just have it be Wedge's gamble. I can see it working. I could see it working. <laughs> Um, I think but, people uh, want a little bit more fighter combat than that, though. That's that's probably fair. Um, but you you can you can fix that so that the rogues like somehow have their X wings and participate in the final battle. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna patiently wait and, and trust that they'll do a good job with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at that, I think that brings us to the end. Yeah. This has been episode 130 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we're going right back to the Dresden Files with book three, Grave Peril. So check that out. We're going to have a special guest for that episode, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. If you want to support the show, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on Coffee. that's K-O-F-I, coffee.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, you can subscribe on Patreon for a bunch of bonus content, or if you just want to do a you know one-time donation or or something like that, uh, you can you can do that on coffee. Uh, all of the generosity of our listeners has kept us going to the point where we're 130 episodes in. It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, we've, we've been able to do some pretty cool things because of that. So thank you, and uh, we hope you continue to support the show. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my wonderful guest, John. Thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, you'll be back. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.